Welcome to podcasts recorded live at the Center for Spiritual Living in Portland, Oregon. Listen past the end of the podcast to find out more about our spiritual center and ways that you may collaborate with us. Happy Sunday, everyone. I'm going to start with a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh's book about work. We're used to making a distinction between work time and free time. But this way of thinking lessens our joy and our success, both at work and at home. We can work in such a way that we realize we have lots of choices in what we do and in how we do it. We can work in such a way that we find opportunities for joy and we don't get stuck in the habit of suffering from pressure or from stress. So that's the promise here. And in fact, that's kind of the thesis for the whole book. And I've already gotten a little bit of pushback in the afterwards program. A, a few people have already come up to me and says, well, Larry, maybe in your world, uh, you can bring joy into what you do. And in fact, I see you on Sunday. It looks like you are experiencing a little joy. But I'd like you to point out the joy in being on the customer complaint line for the gas company. <laughs> You know, it's, it's like, good luck with that, Larry. And, uh, and, and someone mentioned to me, uh, I think what they do is, uh, it's part of a recycling program, what, what loosely may have in previous years been considered garbage collection. And they said, you know, let's, let's look at the optimist, uh, optimism employed in that, would you? You know, just explain to me how there is joy in picking up the trash that other people are leaving behind. Well, I intend to do that today. So stand back. <laughs> and believe it or not, I think I'm going to do that by talking about stress. And you know, it initially reminded me of an old minister joke. This isn't the joke, though, although you can laugh at it if you want. Um, the, the joke will be later in the talk. But it reminds me of an old minister joke. So the, the minister went to the psychologist to help him work with some of the, the stress and burnout that he would, was feeling. And the psychologist said, well, well, is it your job? And the minister says, no, I love my job. The, the, you know, the hours are relatively flexible, and although I have to put in you know, a good 40 or 50 hours a week, it's largely under my own direction and my own control. Um, you know, I get to research sermons and, and improve my public speaking skills, and no, I love the job. And the, the counselor said, well, then what's up? What's all the stress about? And the minister said, well, it's the people. And, and I guess, I think, <laughs> yeah, I know, exactly. I think that is the problem, but it isn't the people. It's how we define our jobs, right? Because really, clearly there, the minister had missed the whole point of what it is to be a minister. It isn't just researching talks. It isn't having a flexible schedule. It's loving people, and it's loving being with them. And I want to suggest, for just a moment, that all of the things that you maybe don't like to do so much, whether they be at work, whether they be at home, it isn't that the thing itself isn't worthwhile, it's that you've defined it a little funkily. And I want to talk about that. I believe that each one of us are expressing God in the world 
every minute of every day. And, and I have a logical proof behind it, although there's a heartfelt one as well. The logical proof is, is if we define God as everything, then God isn't just you when you're retired or sitting at home. God isn't just you on your vacation. God is you at work too. God is your work. If God is everything, every place, every situation, if all of it is the majesty of God, and often, in fact, Star uh, did this a little bit in her, in her opening prayer. She defined God as joy, as, as peace, and as love. Well, if God is all of those things and constantly giving, then I am here to tell you as a logical proof that those things are present in your workplace as well. That joy is there. It may not be easily found. It may feel like it's covered up under a pile of something else. But there is love. God's expressing love. That availability of love and life and purpose and order and joy and all the God qualities are there as well if, if we can somehow tune into them, if we can somehow embrace them a little bit. And so one of the ways I think we can do this is by redefining our job, is by really thinking how is God served in this activity? And I, and I think back around some of the pushback I've, I've gotten this week before. How is God served through trash removal? It's like, think about it. What happened if our trash wasn't removed, right? <laughs> Do any of you remember the garbage hauler strike in New York City a few years back? Within about three days, the city reeked. There is a noble profession in removing our refuse. It brings a cleanliness and a joy of being in the world. Without it, literally, we wouldn't want to step outside after a week or two. Years ago, I was on the customer service line for the telephone company, and it was right when the, the phone center stores opened up. And now, I know I'm dating myself a little bit, but back in the 80s, this was before we had phone center stores on like every block. These days, there's a, a Cricket and an AT&T and a Verizon on just about every block. Back then, none of those companies really existed, and there was the Bell Telephone Company. And they decided, well, we should open the store. We'll sell some phones. The trouble was, there was no idea of what selling phones were back then. People would wander into the store and like, what? You're, you know, I mean, people were used to having a black phone with a dial on it. And anything kind of beyond that, they'd sort of look at you a little bit like, well, there's just the phone. What, are, you know, what is this? And of course, this being a great new idea, management set up sales quotients for us, right? Right? As a new employee in, in the telephone store, I had to sell so many fancy phones every day. Well, I was starting to pull my hair out. I mean, stress. I had, first of all, I'd never been in retail before, what I perceived as retail. Never sold anything. And like right from the get-go, you know, no pressure, but you have three months to show how good you do at this, and then we fire you. It's like, oh, well, you know, at least we have some clarity here about how it works. But thank heavens, I had the most wonderful supervisor and mentor in the world, Barbara Mickelson. And she said, well, Larry, here's your mistake. You think your job is selling telephones. She said, no one's going to come in here to buy a telephone. They don't hardly even know that you can sell them yet. I mean, someday maybe everyone will get used to the idea of buying their own phone. That's not what we're selling here. We're selling an experience. 
She said, people aren't coming in here to buy something. They're coming in here to solve something, to solve an issue or an unwanted desire that they have that they don't think they can do over the phone. She said everyone's used to calling the telephone company. You call them, you arrange for a phone. You call the telephone company and you argue with them about their bill. You call the telephone company with your complaint or your issue or whatever. And she said a lot of people just aren't satisfied with that because they don't feel that they've been heard. They don't have the feeling that there's someone on the other end of that telephone that really cares about them or, or that is able to advocate for what their needs are. She said those are the people coming in here. They don't want to buy anything. They want an honest-to-goodness relationship with someone. They want to have the feeling that, and, we, and for a long time, we mostly got people in who just wanted to pay their bill. Now think about it. Why would someone get in the car or get on the bus and go through the trouble of coming to a place to pay their phone bill? It's because they wanted a relationship. As soon as I realized my job wasn't to sell telephones, but was to allow people to really be heard and be felt and to be treated as a human being, boy, did I sell telephones then, right? Because I wasn't selling them. We had a nice relationship, and out of the kindness of their hearts, they would often go, so do you sell telephones here? <laughs> and I'd say, well, funny thing, actually we do. Do you want to buy one? And it wasn't very long between, guess who, Barbara and I were the top salespeople in the Portland area. Area. It's because we weren't selling phones. We were making relationships. We were willing to listen to people in their complaints and in their issues. We were willing to be there for them as an advocate in a job that most of the people felt were incredibly stressful. Well, I'm going to give you your homework right up front. Because I think one of the ways that we can de-stress our jobs is by understanding the spiritual nature of our jobs. So the boss told me that my job was selling telephones, but my real job was to have loving relationships with the people that came in that door. I want you to think of your job. I want to think of some of the activities. And, and many of you may be retired or don't have a typical job or self-employed or whatever. Then I want you to think about some activity that consumes a reasonable amount of your time that you simply don't like doing right now, that it feels like work. It feels like hard work. I want you, if you will, to think of the spiritual nature of that job because it's there. If it's cleaning the house and you hate doing that, can you imagine what it would be like if the house were never cleaned? You are absolutely bringing safety and cleanliness and order to the world, and that is a high, high calling. If you're on that complaint line and all you do every day, well, in fact, for a short time, I worked for Yellow Pages and I was on there. They even called it the complaint line. And the woman, when I took the job, it was a promotion. <laughs> when I took the job, the supervisor said to me, Larry, you know, you seem like kind of a nice guy. You are aware that it's one complaint after another for eight hours. And foolishly, I said, yeah, but it pays more. <laughs> but after my experience with Barbara, again, what I realized was 
the actual solutions were really fast because what would happen is we'd print the wrong phone number in the yellow pages or we would put the ad under the wrong classified heading, right? So you're never going to actually look for that plumber's ad under painting. You know, we made mistakes like that, sorry to say. And so these were the people calling in. Well, of course, immediately like that, we'll stop billing them, right? But what I realized was what I was doing was grief counseling. Those people had the intention of making a lot of business by having their ad in the Yellow Pages. They had built up in their own mind the utility of it and the importance of it. And of course, the salespeople who had sold the ads had done a really good job of proving value. And so by making that small mistake, it's like I had killed off, we, the telephone company, had killed off part of their dream. Now, of course, we'd stop billing for the, the charges for the advertising right away. That wasn't the issue. They wanted grief counseling. They wanted to be heard. And as soon as I realized this was about fully listening to them and not saying things like, I already told you we stopped the charges. What they wanted to hear was someone saying, I'm so sad. I, I really understand the plans you had made for expansion. And I really feel your pain. I really understand what you're going through. It's like the loss of part of your business. And they would respond much in the way someone who has you know, lost a family member or something. Because in a sense, they viewed us as killing off part of their dream by making those simple mistakes. So this is what I'm asking you to do this week up front as part of your homework is to look at your job and see if you've defined it in your own head correctly. Is it something that you have to do that's kind of loathsome? Is it something just filled with stress and pain that you don't like doing? Or is it how God expresses in the world in some amazing way? I think this will go a long way towards you being able to look at what you do a little differently. Next thing I want to do in terms of talking about stress today, though, is just to talk about stress uh, from a physiological standpoint, from what the doctors say. And what you may not even realize is until 1936, stress didn't even exist. <laughs> yeah, some of you are going, well, yeah, I didn't realize that. <laughs> no, honestly, uh, Hans Selye in 1936 is the first person that proposed the use of the word stress. In 1936, yeah, I swear, uh, proposed the use of the word stress to describe that, that pushing us into a, a place that we're uncomfortable. And here's his definition. He defined it as the nonspecific response of the body to any demand for change, right? So the idea is anytime we're out of our comfort zone, anytime we're, we're asked or required to do something that we don't quite have a complete handle on or that we're comfortable for us, it creates stress. But you know what? He actually created or put into usage three words in 1936. Stress, distress, and eustress. And what's interesting, of course, is we all know what we think we know, what stress and distress is. And in fact, if we look them up in the dictionary now, they basically say the same thing. But that wasn't his intention at all because he believed that stress can actually be, for the most part, positive. 
And so stress itself was intended to be a neutral word. Distress is how we react to change in a negative way. And eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, was the word to describe how we um, respond to that need to change in a positive way. And of course, what's interesting is, well, we just threw all that out. We just decided, oh no, stress by its very nature is negative. But I wanna give you a couple examples. I want you to think about a couple things. First of all, have any of you ever really strived for some kind of an award or some kind of an accomplishment and you made it? Now maybe it was in athletics. Maybe you were uh, working hard at your own personal best for doing uh, gymnastics or something like that and you made the team. Physiological studies will show that your body goes through stress. And yet, how did you feel about it? You felt exhilarated. Even during the competition part of it, you actually felt cool. It was, it was like a wonderful thing. Your heart was racing. You had that pit in your stomach kind of feeling. And yet, it was exhilarating. It was positive. That's eustress. That's when we're moving out of our comfort zone with the idea of achieving something that we have never achieved before and the sense of pride and exhilaration that it brings us. This is positive stress. And the people who study the mind-body connection will tell you that it has the exact same biochemical reaction in your body as the so-called negative stress, the distress that we feel it's simply how our brains interpret it. I want to use one more example, and, and, and this one a, a little bit more of a personal one. So a couple years ago, I had the great pleasure of taking, uh, well, Daniel and I, taking our nephews and niece to Disney World. And uh, so we get there and we're kind of planning out the week and looking forward to, to doing some of the activities and going on some of the rides. And, and my niece, Allie, who's nine years old, says, Tower of Terror, <laughs> right? It's like that's the first thing she wants to do, Tower of Terror. Well, I got to tell you, we're like talking about it in the car on our way to the, the park because most of us are not so convinced that the Tower of Terror is something that we want to do. In fact, to be perfectly frankly, I'm saying, could we maybe start with the teacups? You know, it's like, really from the get-go, Tower of Terror? But she was insistent and she was like a little cheerleader, like no one's ever died, I swear, and it's gonna be so fun and they take you way up in the tower and then they plunge you to the bottom and I'm thinking, Allie, you're not doing a very good job of selling this actually. But she, she, through her efforts, convinced us, okay? So it's, a, and in Tower of Terror, it's like a row of seats, like you're in an elevator. And, and so it's, I can't remember if it's five or six across, but there we were lined up. And I will tell you, one of the things they do, they take you up 20 stories and plunge you to the ground. And just as you're starting the descent, they take a picture of you, of course they do. <laughs> So the picture, the picture tells the entire story. When you get off the ride, there you are for everyone to see. And you know what? There's Allie, as you might expect. Her hands are in the air. She's ecstatic and gleeful and exhilarated. And she just looks like she's had the absolute time of her life. There's me next to her. And I have to admit, you can see the white knuckles. <laughs> 
but I kind of have this creepy little smile. <laughs> you can tell I'm enjoying it too. Ne next come the two nephews, and what's really interesting, of course, is they're the, the butch young men, right? 13 and 14, out to prove how, how strong, and so they never said anything about, no, we don't want to be on this ride, because of course, that wouldn't be like a young man, of course not. <laughs> But you should look at them. They're gripping that bar like death itself is after them. And one of them has kind of the creepy little smile like I do, like we're enjoying it. The other one, you can tell, is scared out of his wits. <laughs> and then last in the lineup is Daniel. And he looks like death warmed over. <laughs> He's not even white. He's gray. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. So... Did not we all ride on the same ride? Exactly the same elements of stress were present. Two of us absolutely used stress, right? That idea of exhilaration and out of our comfort zone, but kind of looking forward to it, and this is going to be fun. The other half of the party in various degrees of distress, <laughs> right? Like this was a horrible thing, I never want to do it again. How did you talk me into this? How could that be? What's interesting is psychologists will say there still isn't a good explanation for it other than our previous experiences and our expectations that when we have had experiences similar in the past that were either good or bad, we will tend to set up in our own mind, in our own experience, to feel it the same way. So if, for instance, uh, Daniel and the two boys had had unpleasant experiences on, I don't know, a Ferris wheel, or you, you, know, you name it, in the back of their mind is, well, it's probably going to be like that. And they will try to experience the exact same feelings that Allie and I felt, and, and the one nephew, right? The exact same experience, we're experiencing it as the, the queasiness in the stomach and the shortness of breath, and some of you are thinking I'm crazy, and that's okay, but three of us experienced that as exhilarating, same exact feelings, experienced it as something distasteful. So how do we begin working on this idea of stress? Well, here's the real joke. All right. So a woman accompanied her husband to the doctor's office. And after his full checkup, the doctor called the wife into the, audience, uh, into the office alone. She said, your husband is suffering from severe stress. He seems unable to mitigate the stress himself. And so I'm enlisting you to help. If we can't resolve this problem, I'm afraid he's headed down the road to some kind of disease and ultimately death. We really have to work on this. Each morning, I'd like you to fix him a healthy breakfast. Be pleasant and make sure he's in a good mood. Use fresh, wholesome ingredients, please, for all of his meals. No prepared food ever. For lunch, make him something he can take to work so that he's not tempted to eat out. And for dinner, help him to eat light and prepare a especially nice meal for him. Him. Also, don't burden him with chores, as this could further add to his stress. Don't discuss any problems with him, as that will only make it worse. And try to relax your husband. Maybe think of back or foot massage. And if you can keep this up for a year, I think your husband will regain his health entirely. 
So on the way home, the husband asked the wife, why did the doctor want to talk to you uh, by yourself? What did the doctor say? Well, honey, I don't know how to tell you this, but basically she said, you're just going to die. <laughs> Believe me, this actually fits into my story here, honestly. The reason is, if we want to deal with our stress, only we can do it. We can't expect our loved ones. We can't expect our bosses. We can't expect our work environment. We can't expect anyone but ourselves to work on doing something to eliminate, mitigate, or reduce the stress, the negative stress, the distress under which we have some of our lives. And Thich Nhat Hanh, the author of this wonderful book, has a couple of very positive ways. First of all, he says that the cause, the, the underlying the cause out of a lot of stress is the feeling of being helpless, the feeling of being out of control. And, and whether it's good stress, like being on the roller coaster for those of us who liked it, uh, or not, that being out of control fuels that feeling, that, that not being able to take charge of what's going on is a large part of it. But Tignat Han says there are always two things that we can completely take control over. One of them is our communication. One of them is letting people know literally how we feel. Given the fact that people react differently to stress and that some things stress some people out, other people are stressed out by other things, first of all, we need to let people know when we're stressed out. How can we expect a boss or coworkers or loved ones or friends to help us in this grand thing called life if they don't even know we're stressed out? We owe it to ourselves to speak our truth. And in the process of speaking our truth, we can begin expanding our circle of comfort gradually rather than all at once, right? You know, my idea of the teacups is actually the right answer to this solution, right? If you want to do the Tower of Terror and you're afraid of it, don't just get on the Tower of Terror, right? It will terrorize you. That's what it's supposed to do. Instead, we move to the teacups. And then we move to, you know, it's a wonderful world or whatever it is. And then, then it's Pirates of the Caribbean, right? Because the idea of anything that we do that seems unpleasant is we can't just go from hating it to loving it in one step. We can't just say, this was odious and rotten today. And tomorrow we say, oh, I'm going to imagine that this is fabulous and I'm really God's hands and act. No, we expand our circle of comfort a little bit at a time. We, get, we begin by seeing how God is in action and what we're doing. And we begin to add to it and be more comfortable with it. And one of the ways we do that is simply to tell people what we're feeling. When I look at my inbox and I see I have 35 accounts in it and I can only get two on average done a day, I'm a little stressed. I'm a little distressed by this. And we talk it over with our coworkers. Oh, don't worry about that. The work ebbs and flows. You might have 35 today, but maybe 10 won't even come in tomorrow. 
right? Just in the process of even explaining what we're feeling, we may get more information. We may learn more about our jobs and what's expected. We may learn what's important. Well, it's no big thing that 35 of them stack up, depending on what it is. We owe it to ourselves the right of communication, the right of clarity around what's important, what my job means to me, how I'm feeling about it. And even if it's only one way, even if the boss says, you know, it's your job, deal with it. It may not sound very useful, but the big part of it is you've explained how you're feeling. There's an awareness of you caring about your job and the necessities of it. And if it is bringing you stress, just releasing that energy of, and I can't tell anyone, and it's eating me up on the inside, just releasing that out into the open is a beautiful thing. The second thing that all of us can do, that all of us can control, is simply our focus. And I want to tell you, most of the bad things that happen in work never really happen. Most of the stress at work is from us imagining what could happen if the work keeps up, if, the, you know, if I'm laid off, right? It isn't what's actually happening in that moment. In that particular moment when the person calls in to complain about their Yellow Pages ad, it is actually very unlikely that I'll be fired or die. Right? <laughs> it's just a telephone call. So what is my stress about? My stress is about worrying about whether I keep up, whether or not the company will downsize, my stress is related to what if I just keep getting one rotten call after another, the one call I'm on, it's no big deal. And when I put my focus literally and exactly on what I'm doing right now, I actually have the time and the effort and the energy to be really good at it because I have my undivided attention. I can connect with that person that, that's having that complaint or doing that thing. I can focus right in on the spiritual nature of it and I can be magnificent in that moment. Because my time isn't being wasted by worrying about what comes next or the, or, or the client I had a week ago that I think is still unhappy or you know that's for then and that's for then. What's right now is my entire focus on what I'm doing, how I'm showing up, and even what I'm feeling about it. When you approach people from those qualities of God, you will almost uniformly have that reflected back at you. When people recognize you're there to console them or to be friends with them or to understand them or any of the various reasons that we do businesses that involve people, when they get that that's what you're there for, you're there for them to have a good experience and whatever it is they're doing, whether they're buying something, whether they're complaining about something, whether they're getting something fitted or refitted or fixed or painted or whatever it is, the thing is not the thing. The thing is you and them. And when that is a relationship that's built on trust and love, you're not going to feel stress. You're going to feel, if anything, exhilarated. If anything, content. Because you're right in that moment doing your darndest for those people 
in a way that's beautiful and personal. You're absolutely listening to them. You're absolutely doing what and why they came to be there with you. Even if they thought it was because their car was broken, even if they imagined it was because the ad was wrong in the yellow pages or because their trash needed to be collected. And even when people aren't involved, right? Even in some of those jobs where you're just filing books in the library or whatever, you are still on a mission from God to provide order and wisdom and inspiration to millions of people. You're not a file clerk. It's how we look at it. It's how we approach it. And when we do it in the moment and give it our best, the stress fades away because you are actively the hands, the eyes, the mouth, the essence of God itself doing God's thing. I'm gonna close with a, a final quote from Thich Nhat Hanh's lovely book called Work and a Prayer. When a mother hears her baby crying, she stops whatever she's doing and she goes to help. The first thing she does is she picks up the baby and holds it tenderly in her arms. In the baby, there is the energy of suffering. And in the mother, there is the energy of tenderness and comfort. Similarly, your fear is your baby. Your anger is your baby. Your stress is your baby. Your despair is your baby. And your baby needs you. Don't struggle against the fear. Don't struggle against the anger, the despair, the distress. With mindfulness, it needs to be embraced. If you continue to breathe mindfully, the energy of mindfulness, it will be generated and will embrace and calm your difficult feelings like a mother tenderly embracing and calming her crying baby. Let us pray. There is a power in this universe, and I call it God, but whatever it's called by, it represents the authentic power of the entire universe. It is never in want. It is never despairing. Love is always available for it because it is love. Joy is always on the forefront because it is made of joy. This thing that I call God, present in all things, every place, every situation, at home and at work, at play and at work, at work and even at work, God is present. And when God is present, it means that joy is there, is available. Even when it looks difficult, even when it's hard to see, the joy, the life, the love, the peace of God available all the time. And for myself on this day, I own up to it. I take responsibility for it. I know that I'm the one, if anyone is going to relieve me of stress or distaste, uh, if anyone is going to handle the issues that I have with people, places, and things, that it is my own power I inherit it from God. It is within my own realm of possibility to make that mental change. And as it is true for me, I know it is true for each person in this room. Each person here is in the mind of God, the beloved. Each person here worthy of love, worthy of joy, worthy of peace, and worthy at work. Each person here 
available to experience the love, the joy, the peace that exists in the world. And I'm simply grateful for this. I'm grateful in recognizing the power and presence of God in each person in this room. I just let it be, and together we say, and so it is. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for being here. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you happen to be in the Portland, Oregon area, we'd love to have you visit in person. The Portland Center for Spiritual Living is located at 6211 Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. We have inspirational services at 9 and 11 a.m. every Sunday. Our mission is to open hearts, ignite minds, and to make a difference. If you'd like to support our center and its podcasts, you can donate online at www.pcsl.us slash donate. Our website is also the place to learn more about what's going on at the center or to contact us. Allow us to become part of your extended community. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are most welcome at the Center for Spiritual Living.